It is good to sing the praises of our God. It is good to be in the gathered congregation of God's people. It is a joy to be with you guys this morning. We are so thankful for your church, so thankful for your elders and the staff team here that have been such a huge blessing to us. As Pastor Ian was saying at the beginning, he's thankful for the GCC, uh, probably not half as much as we are. We have been so blessed in the short time that we've been a part of things, and we look forward to, God willing, lots of years of being able to partner and work together and grow in our friendship. I knew uh, my friendship with Ian must be deepening, uh, maturing this week when he asked me to preach seven chapters of land allotment texts. That's not something you give to a stranger. That's like you gotta, you gotta know someone before you give them a task like that. So our task this morning is to get into God's Word in Joshua chapter 13, which I am so excited for. All joking aside, this is, this is the type of text where, uh, you know, your devotional reading plan goes to die. Uh, you get into this, this land and that land and this lot goes to that people. But guys, um, this word is going to, I believe, prosper our souls this morning. I know it has for me as I've been refreshed in the text this week and I trust it will be for you as well. Uh, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute as we get set to dive in, but first I'm, I'm just going to read for us. I'm going to read, as I said, we're trying to tackle seven chapters this morning which is no small task. I'm not going to read the whole thing, don't worry. Uh, but what I am going to do is I'm going to read the first seven verses of Joshua 13 to set the context for us, and then we'll dive in from there. So follow along with me as I read from Joshua chapter 13. I'll ask you to hear now what Holy Scripture says. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Miara that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, to the land of the Gebolites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizrafoth Maim. Even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. This is the word of the Lord. Please uh, pray with me. Father God, we come to your word believing that no word you have ever spoken was spoken in vain. So we ask for grace to understand, to receive, to believe, to have lives that are conformed to your word and to your will now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever, um, you ever catch someone going through your text messages? That can be an awkward moment, right? 
Uh, one of my kids, when I was uh, preparing this sermon, one of my kids was like on my phone. I thought they were just playing games. And they're like, hey, Dad, I'm reading through all of your texts. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. All of a sudden, alarm bells start going off. Now, specifically, they were just reading the thread between me and my wife. And I, I have nothing to hide, but like, it's alarming still, right? You're like, wait, what is in there? And all of a sudden, your mind starts going. It's like if someone opens up your, your diary and starts reading your journal, you know, and you're like, well, that's, that, feels, that feels a little private. Why does it feel private? Why do we want to protect that? Well, because we know that what you write in there, if someone goes through your text, you want to get to know someone, read through their text. What you write in there says something about you. It's going to reveal something about you. It's going to show what you're thinking about, how you relate to people, uh, how you feel, what's on your mind, what do you keep coming back to, what kinds of things do you get in fights about. All kinds of things are going to surface if you read what someone has written. What someone writes says something about who they are. What I want to do is I want to argue this morning from this text that even in strange passages like land allotments, we have the privilege of reading what our God has written so as to know Him better. What He has written says something about who He is. And it's useful for us. It's helpful for us. This, this is important as a framework going into a passage like this. I joked about this being where devotions go to die, but realistically, how many of us have been flying through Bible reading plans at some point in our Christian life, and we come to passages like this or genealogies, and we think, what in the world? Can I just skip it? But we feel guilty about that, so we just give up on our Bible reading plan or get behind or whatever it is, because it's like, what is this? The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, said, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, and it's useful. It's profitable. It's helpful for, for training in righteousness. This is gonna, it's going to help us to grow, to understand God. Now, that takes faith when you come to passages like this, because I don't know about you. Well, I do kind of know about you, because I'm assuming you've lived for a little while, if you're here. And if you've lived for a little while, probably at some point in one of those days you've lived, you've had questions for God. There have been things you've wanted to know, maybe problems you've faced, maybe philosophical problems, problems like the problem of evil, maybe it's just problems about things going on in your life or things other people are experiencing, and you wish you had answers, you wish there was a Bible verse, you wish there was a text, but you look in the scriptures and God doesn't answer so many of our questions, at least not explicitly, and we're like, why isn't there a text about that? But then look at, look at this. In the middle, just jump in the middle here, chapter 15. Uh, verse 6, sort of in the heart of our text this morning, here's, here's what we do get. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor, so, north, so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. It's like, I've got big questions, God, and you're telling me about the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben? But this is useful. It is profitable. It is helpful for us. And that's, that's what I want to show us, because it tells us about our God. What does it tell us about our God? Here's the first thing this text shows us about our God. It's this. Our God is a God who finishes what he starts. Our God finishes what he starts. You know anybody that's like a really good starter? <laughs> you, know, you know those people? It's like, wow, this guy's got a lot of things on the go. And then you realize like none of them are ever going to get done. 
like a million projects on the go, nothing ever getting finished. I, we, we, sometimes, um, sometimes renovations go like this. We, we had a couple years ago, we were doing some renovations, and uh, we were told at the beginning, it'll be 12 to 16 weeks. Well, first he told us 8 to 12 weeks, and I thought, that sounds ambitious. This guy must be good. And then he was like, no, 12 to 16. I was like, okay. And two and a half years later, we're like, we sh- should we fire this guy? He was still working. It's like, it's one of those, it just drags on and drags on. But there's a difference, right, between those who, you know, take longer than you want, but eventually get the job finished, and those who just never finish. And sometimes you're stuck in the middle going, is this the type of thing that's never going to get done? What God is doing here, the work that he is getting done in these chapters, chapters 13 to 19, is proving that he is a God who finishes. He keeps his word. He finishes what he starts. Now, this started over a half a millennium ago. Pastor Ian read for us last week in Genesis chapter 15 the, the word that God gave to Abram that your people, your descendants, are going to be in Egypt for over 400 years before I bring them out. But then when I bring them out, do you remember the promise? I'm going to give to them this land. So in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, we read this. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And all these people are the people we're reading about in Genesis 13 to 19. Showing that even if there's a span of over 500 years between when God speaks and delivers, He finishes what He starts He emphasizes this in the text that we read, chapter 13. Look again at verse 6, how he specifies this. He says, I myself. That's emphatic. He doesn't need to say I and myself. He can say one or the other. But he emphasizes, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. And then he creates this interesting tension because he... He's saying to Joshua, this is, this is the point of him saying to Joshua, by the way, you're old if you didn't notice. Sometimes people who are old don't notice. Sometimes they do. I don't know if, if people notice with Joshua, but God points it out for him. That's probably helpful for him, right? Uh, just so in case you didn't notice, you're old and advanced in years, and you're not going to, the point is you're not going to live long enough to see the final fulfillment of all of this, Joshua, just like Moses didn't. He allotted some of the land, but wasn't alive to see it end. And Joshua's alive now. He's not going to live to see the end. The point is that it's doesn't depend on human leaders who come and go, but on God who never changes. God who never dies. God who will always keep his word. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. So here's the tension. So even though you don't own it yet, and there's still enemies in the land, there's still fields that need to be plowed and forests that need to be cut down, go ahead and allot it. Divide it up. Start handing out property deeds to all the people as if you own it in faith because I'm giving it to you. I am a God who finishes what I start. And the rest of our passage in 13 to 19 is really playing all of that out. 
So in the rest of chapter 13, you see how Joshua reminds the people what Moses began in giving out the land allotments, the, the inheritance to the, to, the, to the two and a half tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan. And then in chapter 14, the inheritance starts on the west side, beginning with Caleb, who takes his inheritance by faith. We'll think about that a little bit later. But then in chapter 15 through 19, there's parcel by parcel and piece by piece, the land is allotted. And it's done in a very specific way. So it's interesting, in chapter 15, there's the allotment for Judah. And then in chapter 16 and 17, so two chapters for the one tribe, really, of the people of Joseph, which had become two tribes because they were so numerous, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh. So a chapter for Judah, a chapter for Ephraim, a chapter for Manasseh, and then two chapters for all the rest of the tribes in 18 and 19. There's an imbalance there, and why? Why is there an imbalance? That's like, sometimes I think, well, it's probably like when I was a kid and I would make the posters for school. You know, when you start writing out in really big letters, you're like, this is going to be great, and then you realize you don't have nearly enough room, and so you're just squishing in all the letters towards the end of the... That's not what Joshua is doing. Is it? That's, that's not what the author is doing, is he's writing out this. He, he is, there's an imbalance here in the text for a reason. What's the imbalance? Again, if we had time, we could go back and see in Genesis 48 and 49, as Jacob... The father of the tribes of Israel was preparing to die. He was blessing his sons, and in the case of Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons. And he was laying out a prophecy to Ephraim and Manasseh. He said a day is going to come when there's going to be a blessing in Israel. And they're going to say, may the Lord bless you and make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, they're going to be more prosperous, more numerous, more land. And that is proving true in Joshua's day. The same thing goes for Judah. There was a special blessing in Genesis 49 that was given to Judah. A promise that Jacob declared hundreds of years before this day when Joshua writes these chapters it says this in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Judah is going to be great. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be numerous. What's the picture here, guys? God is fulfilling his word down to every detail, every prediction, every promise. It is all proving True, so that by the time you come to the end of our text, all the way at the end of chapter 19 and verse 51, you read these words, so they finished. They finished dividing the land. It is finished. Even though they couldn't fully see it yet, they weren't actually in all these lands yet. They hadn't received the fullness of rest. They haven't fully received all of it yet. But it's been allotted. It's been given. It's been divided. And it's theirs for the taking. They're called to live in the good of the promise. Knowing that God finishes what he starts That's, that's not all that different. You know, for, for being thousands of years removed from these people in a totally different cultural context, it, it's really not all that different for us, right? 
The basic framework is this. God declares the work is finished. He will keep his word. He will deliver us. He will deliver the promises to us. He will keep us for the promise and the promise for us. And in the meantime, we're called to live in obedience, faithfully carrying out the work that he sets before us. For them, the land is there, but it needs to be farmed. It needs to be plowed. It needs to, the trees need to be cut down. The fields need to be cleared. The enemies need to be defeated. The giants need to be taken down for us the promise isn't land it's a new heavens and a new earth there's a new creation for us to receive where we together as God's people will dwell in the new heavens the new earth a place prepared for us to dwell together with our God where we will be his people and he will be our God. Will that come? Will that be our certain reality? That depends if you believe the words of Jesus when he said it is finished. See, here's the reality the greatest obstacle to our living with God, to our inheriting this rest that we are created for, is our sin which separates us from God. But Jesus, in the fulfillment of all of God's promises and all of God's plan for all time, took on flesh and lived a righteous life in our place. He died in our place, bearing our sins in his body, proving once and for all that sin brings death. Like God said all the way back in Eden, he proves true in the death of his son. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and declares it is finished, it's because he took the fullness of the wrath of God in our place to reconcile us to God. So that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will receive the promised rest. And right now, if you've put your trust in him, you are called to live in the meantime. Live in the good of that promise. Live believing that that rest is certain. That that reward for us is certain. It is coming because our God will keep us. Because our God is a God who finishes what he starts That's not a belief, that's not a doctrine that we just hold on to and stick on a theological shelf and go on living our lives. That informs how we live every single day because if you believe, if you want to be faithful and diligent, full of zeal and obedience for the Lord, you need to realize it is bound up with Belief in the reality that new creation's coming for those who hold fast to Christ and persevere to the end. No matter the obstacles, no matter the challenges, no matter how hard, no matter how tired, no matter how long, our God finishes what he starts. He's not going to stop. Will you cling to him? Will you keep believing in the promises? This is a God who finishes what he starts and there is no exception with you. He will finish the work that he has begun in you. But the second thing we see about this God is that he cares about the details of our lives. And, and these things are connected, right? 
Because our God wants to assure us that he finishes what he starts knowing what it is that we're going to be called to endure. Everything that comes in the details of our lives is, is not divorced from the reality that God is going to finish what he began. This is sometimes the means, the instruments, the, the, the way that he will finish his work is through the details of our lives that he brings into our lives. Our God cares about the details of our lives. you ever know someone who, you know, they think you're close, they think you're buds, you know, but you know, they don't know the first thing about you. That's awkward, right? I, um, I once had a professor in, in my undergrad. He, well, he called me Justin for the, uh, the whole semester. That's weird, because my name's not Justin. And I never wrote Justin on any papers that I handed in. I never wrote Justin on any tests that I did. Uh, no one in the class called me Justin. But for some, I, by the end of the semester, I was like, I don't think this guy really cares about me. Because he does not seem like he... If you don't know someone's name, you don't know the first thing about them. You know, if, we're, if, if we have a chance someday to get to know each other a little bit better, maybe I'm over at your house, we're having a chat, or after church, whatever, we're having a bit of a heart-to-heart, -heart. there's some things about me, some details about me that'll probably come up pretty quick. You'll, you'll learn about me, and I'm a, I'm a Christian, obviously, I'm a pastor, I'm married, I've got four daughters, which is just like the greatest thing ever. Um, and a close second to it is that I'm a Habs fan, at least it was a great thing like this summer, that was, that was really great. Uh, that, uh, that, that usually comes up. Uh, also, I hate fish. I don't know why, but that seems to always come up when, when I talk to people too. You know, just things about people's lives that come up. Now, if we, if we had this conversation one time and then, and then later on you call me and you're like, hey man, you want to you, you bring your boys over and, and we can watch the Leafs game and eat some fish? I'm like, this guy's probably either trolling me or he just does not care about me because we've already talked about all of these things. Like, it, uh, you, know, you know the flip side of that? Is you know anybody that like years can go by, maybe, maybe you just met them once or twice, and they, they come up to you, I had a, you know, there's another professor who I didn't even have for a whole semester, I just met him once, and, and we got to know each other a little bit, um, world famous guy, knows more people than I will ever meet, but took the time to get to know me, and years later, saw me pointed me out in a crowd. I said, Julian, how's it going? And he came and he talked to me afterwards, and he asked me about the things that we had talked about last time, and how this situation was going with my family, and what about my in-laws, and it was, rem you know, when someone knows the details of your life, do you know what you feel? You feel cared for. So caring about the details of someone's life is roughly the equivalent to caring for that person. What's being communicated to us in this text with as much painstaking detail, as much devotions killing detail as possible in this text is this. God knows the details and he cares about the details of the lives of his people. He wants his people to feel cared for. Look at chapter 14 and I'm going to read for us a few verses here at the beginning of chapter 14 to, to give us an idea of how this all plays out. Verse 1, these are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, gave them to inherit 
their inheritance was by lot. It's by casting the dice. So, so what, what your inheritance is going to be, uh, what your field, the fields that you're going to plow, the land that you're going to work, the enemies that you're going to face, all of it is given by the roll of a dice here, just as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them, for the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses, they allotted the land. So this is what the rest of the chapters look like. It's playing out of the allotting of the land, the rolling of the dice, the detailing of what land starts where and ends where and who gets it. Chapter 15, I'm just going to give you a taste. I've given you a little bit already. I'll give you a little bit more of a taste of the actual passages where the land allotment happens. Chapter 15, verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah. So just using Judah as an example here. There's all the rest of the tribes to come. According to their clans, reach southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of the Akrabim, passes along to Zin, goes up south to Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla. And, and we've read these verses already. You, you get an idea. There are chapters of this. It is careful and colorful descriptions of the inheritance that God's people are to receive. I love this. It is careful because the details matter. And it is colorful because this is their livelihood. I love the way it's described. There's, there's a poetry to it as well. It runs up here. It touches there. It ends there. It turns back over here. It's almost like the boundaries. The land is being personified. Like somehow it's alive. It, it's an inheritance for God's people and it is precious. That that's why the detail, and not just the land, the boundaries, but the cities. If, if we had time, we could read through. Look, look ahead in, in chapter 15, verses 20 and onward. You get a listing of all the different cities, a chronicling of the cities. This is amazing. Imagine, if this is your inheritance, if this is where you're living, it's like, hey, my town got a shout out. These, these descriptions like, hey, those are the boundaries of my field. This is where I, I farm. This is where my children, my grandchildren are going to grow up. This is precious, careful, colorful description showing that God knows the land and he knows the people and will not leave any of it to chance or to the opportunity for bribery. He says, do it all by lot so that you know all of it comes from me. That's hugely important. Because as, as we said, you, you cannot overstate how important, this, how important this is in an agrarian context where people live off of what they get from the land, where the wars that they fight to finish the conquest will be against very specific armies with different strengths and different weaknesses. Your whole future, your livelihood, your opportunity to provide for your family and to leave an inheritance is all bound up with the roll of the dice and the division of the lands in these chapters. 
These details profoundly affect the entire future of the families of the people of Israel. And all of it's by lot, all of it from the hand of the Lord, which is really important. It's really important. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's not random. It comes from the God who reigned then, and it comes from the hand of the God who reigns now. The same God still reigns. And the lot that has fallen to you in your life, like the lot that has fallen to me in my life, is not random, but comes from the hand of the Lord who knows the details, who knows you, and cares about you enough to have given you this particular lot. There's a reason why Ephraim and Manasseh get the land that they do, why they're the most numerous people with the biggest plots of land and the toughest enemies and the hardest forest to cut down and they face people of chariots of iron. There's a reason why Ephraim and Manasseh got that and, and not other tribes. And there's a reason why you are single in this season of life when you would prefer not to be. I don't profess to know what the reasons are. But I know who controls the rolling of the lots. There's, there's a reason why Simeon in, in his inheritance is put in the middle of the people of Judah. He's like a, like a timbit in the middle of a donut. The, the people of Judah are around to protect, to insulate from the enemies around and from the, the pagan idolatry of the nations around. And when all the other tribes fall and Judah's left standing, Simeon is somehow protected inside. There's a reason why they got that lot and not the other tribes. I don't know what that is. And there's a reason why God gave you the neighbors he did that are different than my neighbors. You live beside people. You work in an industry. You work with coworkers. You have contact with people that none of the rest of us do. That comes from the hand of the Lord. Some of us are born with genes like, you know, to have arms like Ian. Some of us just end up like, you know, And I, and, I, and I joke, but like in all honesty, how many of us would like to pick different lots for our lives? There's a reason why you're sick and people around you are healthy. There's a reason why you are wealthy and other people around you have not succeeded at life. There's a reason why some people seem to bear consequences for all the mistakes they make. They just never get away with anything. And you, on the other hand, get off scot-free, it seems. These things all seem so random. Why do some couples get pregnant just by looking at each other? And others of us deal with the pain of infertility and miscarriage. Some of us grow up in Christian families with the opportunity to flourish. 
from the youngest of days with parents who love us and tell us about Jesus and others of us, man, we're going to live with daddy issues till the day we die. It's hard. A lot doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. And here's the thing we need to realize. We need to remember. Because if we forget that truth, then we're going to be tempted to complain, grow bitter, grow weary with our lot in life, and stop obeying. I don't claim to know the reasons why you have the lot that you do in life, but I know who gave it to you, and I know it's for your good, and I know he's a God who finishes what he starts. And I know he's a God who calls you to continue to keep going, keep obeying, even in the midst of the difficulties. He knows the details. He knows the details. They're chosen for you. They're given to you. And he calls you to be faithful in the midst of it. Because here's the third thing this text tells us about our God. He, he is a God who warns us against half-heartedness. He's a God who warns the half-hearted. Like we said, if we lose track of the reality of the truth that the lot that falls to us falls from the hand of God, we start to grow bitter and complain. Like I used to work in the, in the hospitality industry. I worked at a hotel. And, and I know that the tips that we made, it seemed like depended entirely on the shift that you got. And so you had to get in good with the manager because if you didn't get the right shift, so I'm not going to make any money. And the guys who thought like that inevitably showed up to work like that. Your shirt's untucked. You kinda, you're trying to help the guests, like whatever. And you don't make any tips because you, you feel like, i got a bum lot here, and so you stop working. You stop working. You stop doing the thing that you are responsible to do yourself. You do a half-hearted job, and God warns us against that. Chapter 13 and verse 13, you start seeing this unfold in the lives of the people of Israel. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Chapter 15 and verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. But have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17 and verse 13. Now when the people of Israel grew strong... They didn't finish the job. They put the, Israel, the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. The reality is that the work for a Christian, the life of obedience for a Christian, is not glamour, it's not flash in the pan. The Christian life is not just all the Jordan opening up and Jericho falling down and stones being hurled from the sky to crush our enemies and the sun standing still and we march on and slay them all. We have moments like that and we rejoice in them. That's why they're recorded in Scripture. It's because they're very rare. The most of your life is just the hard work of plowing the fields and cutting down the trees and finishing the work of fighting the rest of the enemies. So easy when the battle feels long and hard and we don't like our lot to just kind of pull up, not finish our obedience with zeal, 
Dill Ralph Davis, one of the commentators on this passage, he writes this. I, I, I thought this was insightful. He says, somehow we relish the call for heroism. And we do, right? We, we think that's amazing and that's good. There's lots of heroes in the text that are good to admire and to strive to be like. He says, somehow we relish the call for heroism, but not that for durability the Christian's faith is not so much proved by his courage in a sudden crisis as by his faithfulness in daily plotting. The daily plotting that God calls us to. Your obedience when you wake up. Your obedience in raising your children. Your obedience in your job. Your obedience in loving your spouse. Your obedience in serving your church. This is a warning. A warning against being half-hearted, which will not inherit the promise. More, more than fiery passion in a moment, God wants from you faithful plotting for a lifetime. Keep going. Keep obeying. Keep finishing the work. That is what receives the reward it gets, it gets bad. Like, look at, look at how this plays out in chapter 17. In verse 14, so set the context again. The people of Ephraim and Manasseh are many. The, the people of Manasseh have already received a reward. The half-tribe of Manasseh has already received a reward on the east side of the Jordan. And now on the west side, Ephraim is, has likewise got some inheritance. And now the second half-tribe of Manasseh is getting their reward. So in some sense, there's like three lots already allotted to the one tribe of the people of Joseph. But look at how they respond to it in verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying... Why have you given me just one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I'm a numerous people, since all along Yahweh has blessed me? Hey, come on, let's get on board with the vision here. Let's make Manasseh great again, Joshua, come on. This is manifest Manasseh time, like, let's go. Look at what Joshua says. Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, hey, I'm just quoting you back to you. You said you're numerous. If you're a numerous people, go out by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you, you say it's too small, go, go free up the rest of the land. Verse 16, the people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. We can't go to the plain because there's enemies and the hill country is not enough. But both, both those in Beth Shean and in its villages and in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. God's made you strong for a reason. He's called you to this moment. He's given you this land for a purpose. I know it's not exciting and it's a lot of hard work, but it's what he's called you to. So keep going. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Preacher, that sounds kind of like Old Testament stuff there. Like you're emphasizing obedience a whole lot. Aren't we a people of, of grace? Like we don't believe... We don't believe in all this effort stuff, right? Like we're supposed to, like God's given us his promises, so that means I'm supposed to buy a hammock and kick back in the backyard and enjoy my summer and just wait for new creation, right? 
I don't think we're paying attention, guys. Look at 2 Peter with me. I just want to read for you a few verses from 2 Peter who highlights our response to grace here. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us, to Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Hey, that sounds more like it. That's a message of grace. We receive a promise. We believe in the promise. Now we're supposed to just relax, right? Now look at what he says. For this very reason because of God's grace what now make every effort underline those three words if you haven't make every effort this is how you respond to grace make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from be being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Implication, if you do not make every effort, you might fall. This is a warning to those who would be half-hearted. Our God is warning those who would be half-hearted. Here's why it's an important warning. Because most people don't ever decide consciously to become half-hearted. You don't typically wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I think I'll go half-hearted today. Most people don't live like that. It comes over the long haul. It comes over the drudgery. It comes as things seem hard and complicated and long and there's no progress, it seems, for extended periods of time. And so we just kind of give up. That kind of living does not inherit the reward God warns the half-hearted to endure, to press through, to obey. Here, here's the flip side. The last thing we see about this God in this text this morning is the flip side. The other side of the coin. He warns the half-hearted, but this God rewards the audacious. He rewards the audacious. I love this. You, you know anybody that gets better deals on stuff than you do? Like I, have a, I had a friend who I, like, um, I remember I used to get embarrassed when we would go to stores together um, we don't go to stores together anymore, otherwise I would still get embarrassed. But like, he, he, he gets deals, like, he goes into stores where you, you're not supposed to go haggle. Like, he goes into like Shoppers Drug Mart, Home Depot, you know, he's like, well, I think we can do a better price on this, you know. But the thing is that's crazy is a lot of times he gets it. He, he's just bold enough to ask and a lot of times they find ways to make things work. And the truth is that our God rewards those who are audacious enough to ask. Look in chapter 14, the story of Caleb. I love this. Caleb comes to Joshua. The land is starting to be parceled out. And before they start parceling it all out to everyone else, Caleb comes to Joshua and reminds him. He reminds him of the promise that God gave him of the inheritance. 
And now he says in verse 10, chapter 14, verse 10, Now behold, Yahweh has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I love this. He's like, guys, 85 is a new 40. All right, we, we still got this. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war, for going out, for coming. So give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants were there with great fortified cities. I'm 85. Give me the giants in the fortified cities. Let me take them. Let me take the hill country. It may be that Yahweh will be with me and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. God said it, now I want it. And the reward is granted to him. The inheritance is given to him. I, I love this. We read about this. It's not just guys. Girls get in on this too. And I love what this says about our God as well. That in a time when women aren't included in genealogies, they can't receive an inheritance. It's not like anyone would have asked them to vote if there was an election. God includes stories like this of powerful, faith-filled, conviction-filled women. Look, look, these daughters of Zelophehad. I, I kind of like this story because Zelophehad had no sons, only daughters, so it resonates. Um, but then I realized that Zelophehad died, so that's kind of sad. But look at, look at how this story plays out in chapter 17 and verse 3. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. They just walk up to the high priest and the commander of God's people and said, Yahweh commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. They, they go right up to the leaders of God's people and say, we want what God promised. It's bold. But these women receive the inheritance is this, this, is, this is our God. Don't we see this in Christ? Which paralytic of all the paralytics alive in Jesus' day, which one was healed? It was the one whose friends ripped the roof right off of the building where Jesus was preaching to drop the bed essentially onto Jesus' lap so that he had nowhere to go but to heal the guy. Who was it? It was the woman with the issue of blood, the, the one who forced her way through the crowd to sneak up and try to steal Jesus' power through his cloak. She's the one who's healed. It's the criminal who's hanging on a cross, rightly dying for his sins beside Jesus, and looks at Jesus who is dying also, but has the faith, the audacity to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's the guy who was taken to paradise on the very same day. Our God is a God who rewards the audacious. He rewards those who march into his presence, scriptures in hand, and say, you said. Now where is it? I want to see you finish what you started. I want to see your promises come true. I want to receive the inheritance that you promised me. Guys, this God... He's God who says, I'll finish what I've started. I know the details of your life. I know how hard it is, but I'm calling you to faithful obedience in the middle of it. Don't grow weary. Don't grow half-hearted. But keep seeking me audaciously, claiming the promises that I've given you. And I will provide you with rest. You will, in the end, receive all that God has promised. This is a God, a God who gave us a text like this. 
He's a God who's loved us deeply. God who's worthy of all of our praise and adoration and obedience. So let's pray. Father God, we declare our love for you and our desire to live for you. We freely confess that we feel the reality that we do not have sufficient strength to endure the rest of the work set before us. But we put our trust again in you, the God who will finish what you've started. The God who keeps his word, who keeps his promises. And we ask for grace. You have promised grace. You have promised help in our time of need. And so, Father, we look to you and we ask for that help. We ask for more of your spirit who would strengthen and sustain and equip and grant us with grace to obey. Keep us. Finish the work you've begun in us. Give us obedience now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.